Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizade, and I am very happy today to have Marissa Galvez on the podcast. And um, Marissa has um, come on to talk about, well, she and I were just chatting about this before we started uh, the recording. This will be the, um, the first time, though certainly not the last, <laughs> that we have a poem featured on this podcast that is um, that we're bringing to you in translation, though you'll also hear it in its original. Um, the poem um, is called The Song of Nothing, and it, it is by the first attested troubadour, um, whose name in English, as I checked with Melissa, I, Marissa, I should refer to as William the Ninth, though perhaps she'll get into some of the other ways um, by which he can be identified. Um, we'll make a text of that poem available to you. So look for that in the, in the episode notes, uh, for people who'd like to look as they listen. Um, let me tell you first though, a bit more about Marissa Galvez. Uh, she's a professor of French and Italian and by, by courtesy of German studies and of comparative literature at Stanford university. And she's the author of two books um, both of which were published by um, the University of Chicago Press. So her first book, um, called Songbook, How Lyrics Became Poetry in Medieval Europe, and that was published in 2012. Uh, and that was followed by a book called The Subject of Crusade, Lyric, Romance, and Materials, 1150 to 1500. Uh, that one, as I say, published also by Chicago in 2020. Um, and she's, um, she's currently working, as I learned from her website, on, I think, two things, maybe. One, a, a book that would be a, a transhistorical interdisciplinary study of crystals as metaphor, material, and object, and a project on contemporary and modern translations of medieval lyric and how they propose new ways of and this is her phrase, quote, lyric knowing um, in the global South. Um, she's also um, involved with, or I think the director of, an ongoing project called Performing Trobar, um, which mm -hmm. seeks to cultivate the experience of troubadour lyric as live performance. Um, fans of this podcast might might note a kind of uncanny coincidence, which is that the most recent episode of the podcast um, uh, featuring Stephanie Burt from, um, from Harvard University on, on the poet Alan Peterson, Steph and I, before we got to that poem last time, talked about, well, we were talking about Taylor Swift and we were talking about the relationship between song lyrics and lyric poetry um, and Steph, unprompted, brought up the work of Marissa Galvez and said, you know, she'd published this great book. Steph was referring in particular to Marissa's first book, Songbook, and said that it just totally changed her sense of, of, of the relationship between popular music or popular song forms and lyric poetry of the history of the relation between those genres and, and that it was one of the great books in poetry studies of the last few decades. At little did Steph know I was, I was <laughs> in the process of booking Marissa to, to appear on the podcast. So I don't know, make of that what you will. The poetry world is small <laughs> or, um, or, you know, fate is well designed or something like that. Um, 
that first book, I think, is is a. Uh, I mean, both of the books are fascinating, but but perhaps because of the recent conversations I've been having, that first book has really caught my attention in preparation for this conversation. Uh, Marissa is looking at early songbooks to investigate how, in her words, songbooks establish the expectations of establish expectations of the poem, the poet and lyric poetry itself. She writes that what we consider poetry is built on the remains of lyrics seen in the material formations of the songbook. And so I think we have the great fortune today of having on the podcast a scholar in the truest sense of the word, someone who helps us understand what has made possible or even sort of necessary what we do now when we read a poem or write a poem or think about a poem. And, and therefore, I think, you know, I have the good luck today to be talking to a medievalist who can also help us see anew our own encounter with poetry. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm just very pleased to have you on the podcast. Marissa Galvez, how are you doing today? Very well. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Well, it's it's totally my pleasure. So, um, you know, when when you and I were talking about your coming on, I thought, oh, it would be cool to have something from the troubadour tradition sort of featured on this podcast. Um, I, as you know, you may know, uh, mostly work in the 20th and 21st centuries, and for a lot of modernist poetry, and of course, I'm thinking of a figure like Ezra Pound or someone like that. The troubadour tradition is it sort of occupies a sort of privileged place in the imagination of what poetry is or might be or should be or I don't know what but I you know I like to take a really kind of open-ended and generalist approach with this podcast and I don't want to presume that anybody really you know knows much about what we mean when we use that term so I wonder if we could just begin this conversation by my inviting you to tell the initiate uninitiated something about what the troubadour tradition was like what does that word troubadour mm-hmm. designate either historically or formally or generically linguistically i don't know how how would you um introduce someone to that term and concept sure so the word troubadour comes from the occitan word trobar um occitan was the old occitan that is is the medieval language that the troubadours employed is a romance language um, based on Latin as well. Um, Trobar means to find, to compose, invent, similar to tropari in Latin. Um, But really finding, like finding words, finding words and song or sound together. That's what the troubadours were about. And they called themselves troubadours or troubadour um, and finding. And I like to think of those songs as always in this process of trying to find putting music and words together. Um, it's a process. Um, mm. They never called themselves a poet. They called themselves a finder, an active mm-hmm. activity. Was, um, was poet another word that they might have used but declined to use? I mean, is that a um, distinction they were making from no, some other yeah, kind they of? Never, yeah, they never, poet doesn't right. combine. They just say yeah. troubadour. They say chantador, singer. Uh-huh. Um, um, our troubadours for today, William the Ninth, will say, I'm going to make a song. I'm going to make a verse that right. I am this. Right. So they're always making something or composing something or 
uh, crafting something, um, planing words, right? Arnold and of course, really, of yeah. course, m- making is also there in the etymology of poetry, right? Or poesis, mm-hmm. um, right? Um, or, or the um, makar. Yeah. Okay. Go on. Yeah. Yeah. Tell yeah. us more. Yeah. Um, so Occitan, for those of you who don't, who might not be familiar with that word, um, it's still actually yeah. a, a language used in Southern France today. Um, the Shubadors were active, uh, were medieval poets active in the 12th and 13th century in mostly Southern France, but also Northern Iberia and Northern Italy. Um, and Occitan, it used to be called in academic circles Provençal, which is what most people are familiar with, Provençal. Wow. But actually, Provençal is only one dialect of Occitan. There's Gascon, Languedoc. Uh, so, but Occitan is the general um, the general term for the medieval language that they use for their um, poetry. Uh, I see. So, right. And so I, uh, I, I think this is right. I referred to Pound earlier. Um, mm-hmm. He would have used the, the term Provençal, um, right, exactly. I think. But, but what, what I think I've just heard you say is that Provençal is, is a sort of smaller category than Occitan, which includes Provençal, but other, includes other dialects mm-hmm. as well. It, is right. is our, yeah. our poet today writing in the Provençal dialect of Occitan? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm not actually quite sure. I, I guess uh, the the dialect of his region, which is Poitiers, uh, that area. Um, so, I mean, that uh, I don't think people have been able to tag exactly to just yeah. call it, generally call it Occitan. There are other Jubadors that are much more marked, like Gascon um, dialect see. or closer to Catalan or something like that. But um, Occitan is basically the term that we use, that we say that he was composing it. And I think you said um, 12th and 13th centuries. Is that right? Yeah, all um, the way up there. But pretty much yeah. the high point of it was, um, you know, William the Ninth burst upon the scene at the beginning of the 12th century. He was our first attested troubadour. I see. And then um, they really have the height of the, the most well-known troubadours and the height of the activities, like the mid-12th century. First so, he, so here today, we're talking about like 900 years ago, basically. Yeah. <laughs> That's I know, great. So I love that. I love that. Um, what What about um, y- you know? You say they didn't use the word poetry, but of course, here we are talking about uh, one of these songs mm. on a poetry podcast. So we're I, yeah. I'm using that. We're sort of shoehorning them in or something. Um, <laughs> and of course, we'll get we'll get a, a close encounter with one example of um, what these songs were like, but um, how would you compare, I mean, generically, I guess the typical, even if, if you even accept that there is a typical troubadour kind of um, song, how, how, you know, for a contemporary reader, a reader of contemporary poetry um, or someone familiar with the say history of English or American poetry, mm-hmm. um, sort of what would they notice typically about how a troubadour song is both is both like and unlike, you know, what we have come to, you know, call a poem or a lyric poem. Right. Well, the, the main reason why we read them today is that they are they are well known for inventing a certain type of love language. That is to say, love for um, an illicit love object, adulterous love. They popularized that also in vernacular language. And the idea that this quest for this unattainable love object who is unnamed is a good in and of itself. The quest isn't, and you don't actually want to attain that love object, but rather you just want to sing about it as it. So they popularized <laughs> that when, at a time when people were talking about going on crusade or God or, you know, this, they right. suddenly, they, 
they popularized the subject matter of erotic illicit love um, for but a lady, for a high born lady for a very noble love object not vulgar love um, and so what they did is they translated that desire all the movements of the heart which we would recognize in any pop song today you mentioned right. Taylor Swift before. Um, you you sing about not being able to have that love, but all the movements of the heart, hope, despair, frustration, right. um, and they make that into a song. <laughs> right. Oh, I love that. Yeah, no, I love that. So, uh, right. I'm, I'm going to make it a point now to, to you know, just for, um, you know, uh, to drive up the podcast popularity to mention Taylor Swift on every podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I do, we're that, doing that, that for our course I'm teaching this spring. It's like the history sure. of now from Sappho to Swift. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm teaching Not Jonathan. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> right. Um, no, I mean, I won't actually do that, but, but you've, you know, you've, you've, you've given us, um, uh, a really um, interesting, I think, way to conceptualize it. And I love what you say, you know, we say sort of love poetry, erotic poetry, but what's the sort of condition, if I'm hearing you right, that sort of sponsors the singing or the making, uh, the finding of these words is, um, I don't think you use this word, but I'll, I'll use it and see what you think of it. It's like the condition of longing, of, mm-hmm. um, of sort of, you know, being in the grip of desire, but not having the desire satisfied. Um, th- these aren't poems about happy marriages, in other words. No, <laughs> about wanting and not wanting, and that that gap in between where you think about all that frustration and hope is like that gap is filled in by the song. And the other right. aspect of the troubadours that is important for those lovers of poetry and people who care about poetry, it's that if this music, this was music. It was always performed. It was, you know, their troubadours are known for inventing this love language of desire, but then also for their virtuosity in meter and putting words and sound together in these kind of virtuous, these forms of, of repeated, of repeated melodies fit to a uh, uh, repeated metrical form in each stanza. So when they performed it, all the, the songs weren't written down until very like generations later. It was just basically remembered improvisation of a blueprint of words and sound together. So that's another amazing thing that, and I always like to emphasize that the, these songs are performed before a live audience, and that was part of their power. <laughs> per, that's fascinating. Performed before a live audience. So William would sing, yes? Yeah. He, he would they sing, which I, we don't really know, yeah, probably. We don't know. We're just, but they very they're monologic kind of poems that maybe had like some musical background, but they're powerful in of itself. When I recite it, you will hear that even yeah. when I'm not singing it, it has its own rhythm, its own sound. Right. Okay. So I was going to ask you that too. Was there accompaniment, you know, with like, you know, I think of the ancient Greek example of the lyre or something like right. that. So we're not sure, maybe yes, maybe no. We're not no. sure, but yeah. probably there might've been. Yeah. Right. Okay. And then, um, I'm also fascinated, of course, with what you said about the fact that they weren't copied down until generations later. So it's it's um, not. I mean, I guess I, I I'm going to um, I'm sort of anticipating that the answer to this is going to be another. We're not sure, but let me ask the question anyway because <laughs> it's an interesting one to me. Um, they weren't copied down till later. There they were performed. Would I be right in sort of guessing that the composition whatever that means the kind of making up or the finding of these words was not something that involved pen and paper or the equivalent of that like they were composed orally 
as well. It's not right. just like, right. It, it, so it's not like um, he, he was sort of working it out on paper, came up with the song to perform and then, and then ditched the manuscripts. There wasn't a manuscript really until it was copied down generations later. Have I got that history right? Yeah. Um, we think that, and also there's sort of hints in the lyrics and also um, in the parallel um, German troubadour tradition, the Minnesang, we know that they might have had props, maybe paper props that eventually became the fancy song books that would be that would collect the lyrics later. Mm-hmm. But in general, though, I, I think that they had what I like to call the blueprint of a right. repeated meter to a melody that repeated every stanza. That was enough to carry a song um, as remembered improvisation. Maybe you change the stanza, maybe you change the word to fit the meter, but I mean, it was kind of, um, troubadours were very much singer-songwriters. They could be of different classes, but they were known, um, they had their stature because they were excellent singer-songwriters, right? That they could really make a song that locked it in. And we know this because, for instance, the most, one of the most famous troubadours, Bernard de Ventadon, um, in his most well-known song, the Lark Song, he, in all the manuscripts, it's transmitted basically like in the same way every time because it's the blueprint was so solid, right? Maybe there was right. stanza um, transposition, but basically mm. it's the same. So I think, um, I think that's, in, yeah, it's important to, I mean, we, we sometimes forget like during the middle ages and before people heard everything they could, you know, they, they mm. didn't, we weren't relying on like uh, reading anything, but everything mm-hmm. was a text in the sense of sound and, 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 and memory could imprint themselves on the mind in that way. So and- yeah. yeah. And and so in my sort of amateurish way, I guess I'm I'm wanting to say, but I think I'm also hearing you say, so I feel sort of sponsored in this um in this belief that the formal some of the formal features of the of the poem we're about to hear, but of other poems in this tradition, too, or songs in this tradition, perhaps I should say, um uh are sort of aids to memory or or kind of help to lock help in that sort of process of locking in. So what do I mean? Like structures of refrain, certain Mm -hmm. kinds of metrical regularity, or the fact that as I look at this poem on the page, I see stanzas that all, if I couldn't read the words, I would say they all look the same, right? There's a kind of regularity to the line lengths and so on. And that formulaic nature um, helps with that kind of locking in process. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, Wonderful. Okay. So, um, (laughs) I think, I think, um, I think we're ready. I mean, I guess I have, uh, you know, I was going to say, I think we're ready to hear the, hear the poem, but maybe I could just ask you to say one more thing before that, which is, all right. So I invited you to do a troubadour poem. You have at your fingertips, um, a great kind of archive of possibilities here. Can you say a word about why you chose this particular one for, for this conversation? Like, does it, you know, you love it, it amuses you, or what is it, you think it's useful for beginners or what? Yeah. You know, I almost didn't want to get this one because William the Ninth, he's our first attested troubadour that we know of. And um, it's, it's almost too modern. Like what I said, that most of the, the, most of the reasons why we, we know about the troubadour say it's like it's like love a love song right like oh i wish i had her but i can't and i'm going to sing about that longing and despair um but if you <laughs> william the ninth song he comes upon he can compose those songs but he also right. does these body boasting songs which is the song that we're gonna we're gonna um yeah look at and, and listen to 
And so it's kind of like extrinsic to the tradition, but also very much part of the um, part of the the world of the troubadours. Um, so I like it because it's it's it brings up well one of the parallels I like to make with troubadours is they're kind of like it's like hip hop rappers kind of things that yeah. a lot of the things that they do the rhetorical maneuvers they're citing about their material wealth the um, kind of association associating poetic prowess with sexual prowess. William the Ninth does it just right there. Um, right. So he's kind of deliberately body and boasting, but then he's also very sophisticated in his poetry. So I, I find him fascinating. And it's, he's a, his poems, the, the ones that I'm, the, his boasting songs are very relatable to a modern audience, almost too much so, but I yeah, think they're lots right. of fun as well. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> so, so maybe a good way in, but, but not entirely representative of the whole right. tradition in that one, in that yeah. one sense. So, um, um, there's a term of art that you've used and I've used it too, I think, but maybe we should just gloss it for the audience. When we say first attested troubadour, what, mm. what work is the word attested doing there? And what, what, what does that mean exactly? Right. So he's the earliest troubadour that of whose lyrics we have written down, right? And we know, unlike other troubadours who we vaguely know about, William the Ninth, because he was an aristocrat, he's such an important lord, we have a lot of documents on him, historical documents. Um, he was actually in trouble with the church, uh, apparently had long hair, he would hang out with his ladies. And, you know, <laughs> he tried, he had an affair, got excommunicated, and then actually in the end repented and went off on crusade. But we know a lot about him. There's like, he, he got in trouble with the clerics, but he was also a very powerful lord. So that kind of biography, um, you know, of course, we're always careful not to read his lyrics in those framework, but we do know more about him and can get, give, give a context about it. But when, so first attested means that the first lyrics, uh, earliest lyrics that we know of that have been passed, transmitted in manuscripts, I suppose. Okay. And that yeah. we can, though, though it sounds like the sort of whole sort of concept of like what an author was or what authorship or whatever is obviously a highly historically contingent sort of thing. It does sound like there's, these are attest, you know, these, songs are his in some yeah. real sense yeah okay good um all right so yeah let's let's um let's listen to the poem and i guess um first in the in the occitan and then we can sort of take a breath and um and then hear it <laughs> as well in english um and just as a reminder to um to our listeners here you can you can find a, a link to the text of this um song in the episode notes um marissa take it away Okay. Okay. Per poc només le cor patit d'un dol colau, en no mo prets una fromits per sant marçau. Malart so e crani moril, e rei no sai mascan l'austil, mech si calai al mil albil, en nom sai tau. Vos mech que en sim pot guerrier, mas non si amau. Amigo aiu no sai qui ses, can no la vie si ma vu fes, ni fes can place ni can bes. Okay, 
que nos lavailles bemen des portes non pas son genre. Qu'il ne sait jeune sol et bel azol et qui marche val. No sai lo les veson casta, si as un prego sen in pla, no as dile lo tot gemag abans mencal, e pesam be carsairema ab aitan val. Fait ai lo vers, no sai de qui, e tramet hai lo a celui quel l'homme trametre per l'autrui, anvers anjal, quem tramet se del soul estui lo cantre pau. <laughs> that, that was, no, well, that, well, hang on, hang on a second. That was great, Marissa. Yes. Um, so, so I just want to, you know, um, again, remind people. You've just heard uh, that, that was a fantastic. I'm so happy to have had that um, to, to have gotten to listen to that. That was Marissa Galvez reading um, in the Occitan in the in the and and Marissa, have I did I hear you right? This would be old Occitan. Is that right? Or yeah. mm-hmm. okay, which is a little bit different from modern Occitan. Yeah. Would a modern Occitan speaker uh, be able to? notwithstanding that difference, be able to understand what you just said, more or less? Yes, yeah. probably, more okay. or less, yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So um, so that was um, Marissa Galvez reading um, <laughs> William the Ninth's um, uh, Song of Nothing, and now Marissa <laughs> will hear it in English. And what kind of translation is this that you have at hand? Is it like um, fairly kind of um, literal, and uh, or, or do you want to set up the translation in any way, or just we can talk about it afterwards? Up to you. Yeah, I think this is usually the English translation that's most used closest to the Occitan. Um, okay. There's a lot of ambiguity um in translate especially towards the end of the song um, have i got it I right think it's the most reliable so we should we should credit the translator probably the translator yes. is gerald a bond is is that right right yeah okay yep. good um okay so now in english please <laughs> oh yes i'll do a song about nothing at all it won't be about me nor about others it won't be about love nor about happiness nor about anything else for it was composed earlier while i was sleeping on a horse i don't know what time i was born i'm not happy or sad i'm not a stranger or an intimate friend nor can i do anything about it for so i was enchanted at night upon a high hill i don't know when i'm asleep nor when i'm awake if someone doesn't tell me my home my heart is almost split apart by a heartfelt pain, but that is not worth an answer me by St. Marshall. I am sick and I'm afraid of dying, yet I know nothing about it except what I hear. I'll search for a doctor to my liking, yet I don't know any. He will be a good doctor if he can heal me, but not if I worsen. I have a woman friend. I don't know who she is, for I never saw her, so help me. She never did anything which I like or dislike, and I don't care for there was never a Norman or a Frenchman in my lodging. I never saw her and I love her greatly. I was never right and she did me no wrong. When I don't see her, I'm happy about it. It's not worth a rooster to me, for I know one more gentle and beautiful who is worth more. I don't know what the place where she stays, whether it's in the hills or on the plains. I don't dare speak of the wrong she has done to me. I'll just drop it and it grieves me to stay here, so I'm going. I've done the song about whom I don't know, and I'll send it over to the one who will send it from me through another towards Anjou so that she might send me a copy of that key to her coffer. 
<laughs> All right. Thank you. No, th that's great. So, um, you know, I had this initial feeling of delight. I, I confess I did not know this text before you suggested it for the podcast. So I've, but, but when you gave me the title, I thought, oh, how wonderful. Um, you know, <laughs> the song of nothing. And of course, I thought of the, you know, like, um, this, I guess, just marks me generationally or whatever. I thought, oh, it's like Seinfeld, you know, like a show about nothing or something. Um, so that if we take those those first lines of that first stanza, and again, I guess one thing maybe I could just um, sort of, you know, um, call attention to for people who aren't looking at the text or didn't necessarily hear it in Marissa's wonderful reading of the Occitan. These are um, stanzas of six lines each, um, and they have, um, they rhyme in a kind of, um, what, A-A-A-B-A-B, and those B mm -hmm. rhyming lines are shorter lines. So right. the, the fourth and the sixth line of each stanza is shorter. Um, in that first stanza, and there are eight mm -hmm. of them, eight stanzas, um, in that first stanza, I'll do a song about nothing at all. And, and then this sort of series of statements about what it won't be about. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I think you've already sort of set this up in, for us in some ways, but I just want to like um, make it crystal clear for people. These, the series of negations, like um, what are the, what are the expectations that are being mm -hmm. undermined? Uh, or do these have to do with genre or social class or, you know, like what are they, what's the poem that he's not doing that he, mm. or the song that he expects, he thinks we expect him to be singing that he's, you know, um, um, disavowing in some way. Right. Yes. So there's even in the first stanza, there's a lot. Mm -hmm. So I'll do a song about nothing at all. That already is a provocation because here you have a Lord, a very powerful Lord of his area, the Duke of Aquitaine. You, when you do a song in that position, you have to do it's about God or religion or going on crusade. You don't do about nothing. So that already um, is a provocation. And I also like to say, so I'm making a song. It's, it's song translated, it's, it's translation, but it's really a verse, which can be different things. But all you need to know is it's going to rhyme. It's going to be, right. you know, he doesn't say chanson or council. It doesn't identify that since he's the first troubadour that we know of, the earliest ones just say verse, you know, which is uh -huh. kind of, you don't know what that is. And, um, and co so cognate with our word verse or whatever. Yeah, right. yeah exactly. Yeah, okay, so right, it's right. something that turns back on itself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and it rhymes and it does have that repetitive rhyme. And so he already on from the very first line, he's making this provocation in terms of like, you, you, your song has to have a subject and usually a serious one at that, or maybe love, but nothing to name actually nothing is already provocation. Mm -hmm. Then he starts a series of negations. It won't be about me nor about others. So then what is it about? Won't it be about love nor about happiness, hmm, nor about anything else. And then he says, for it was composed earlier while I was sleeping on a horse. Now, if you're a lord like that, what do you do when you're on a horse? You do your knight, you do chivalrous things, you do things for the social good, maybe go on crusade. But not only do you compose poetry while you're on a horse, but you're sleeping on it. Like there's just, yeah. oh, you know, this provocation. And I like to say he introduces the horse thing because already the song, even though we don't have the music to this particular song, it has this kind of almost plodding horse-like yeah. rhythm. Da -da, yeah. da -da, da -da, da -da, da -da. 
And that is a deliberate, this guy's sophisticated. He's making it deliberately crude for a reason. Like here's my stupid nothing song with this plotting rhythm because anyway, I composed it while I was like, so everything's like, I don't have an activity. I don't have a subject matter. Uh, you know, I'm going to not sing about anything that you think is important. So we, already from the first stanza, we have this like provocation of what it is a song about nothing in sound and also in subject matter, right? And also a verse, like verse fills up, like this is the place, this playful lyrical space where someone who, before he was born, he had an identity. Now he's huh. negating that identity. And within this poetic space he, of negation, he can be anything he wants. So this is what, what is opening to us, this right. realm of possibility in the, in the song about nothing. Oh, I love that. That before he was you know, born, he had an identity, right? He, yeah, you're, you're that's right. What William the Ninth, you know, yeah, right? You know, um, uh, good. And and this idea, I'm I'm totally persuaded by this idea about the horse too, because it's it's as though, right? Like, okay, the the content is nothing. The of, of this song is nothing. Well, perhaps you think even if that's the case, then I'm. I've made up a pleasing rhythm of my own, but like I didn't do that. The horse did that or something, right? right. You know, there's, there's then, almost yeah. nothing there. Yeah. And there's this attachment to the horse. That's very much again, introducing this thing. That's always kind of boastful, sexual, poetic prowess. Cause the horse is attached to this like, kind of masculine knightly ideal. And he's playing with that. He's like, well, what I do on a horse is I compose poetry, but there's a like, kind of a symbiosis between this animal bestiality and him that we hear in the poetry itself. Like it's like plotting, it's like this. So I yeah. think that that's kind of interesting and, and important to remember as a context with when you read medieval poetry, right? Kind of this thing. <laughs> and, and, and not just coming up with the, the poem or the song, the verse on the horse, but, but while sleeping, which sounds even more, yeah, even sleep. less, even less sort of um, masculine or whatever, um, heroic right. or something. Right. I mean, it's, it sounds like, um, I don't know, like Don Quixote or something, you know? Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. you have to wait until like the Renaissance where it's okay to be idle and that's seen as a virtue. Uh -huh. Like that's where uh -huh. imaginative activity comes, otium, right? Or but, right. No, no, here you're supposed to be active and doing something. <laughs> Right. right. Uh, uh, and, and so the idea of he's combining all these things that you're in which the audience would have known he would have that that's what's expected of him um, in that social world. But he's like, no, it's going to be a song about doing nothing at all. Right. And he names it as that. Yeah. 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 And, and, and the, the second stanza really sort of um, doubles down on or, you know, reasserts these series of negations. Like I'm really struck right. by the, that kind of anaphoric um, rhythm mm -hmm. of those first, what is it? Three lines, the, um, which, I mean, I won't really try the Occitan, but I notice as I look at the, at the left-hand side here of my page, which has that text on it, you know, no, no, yeah. sai, no, soy, no, so, you know, That's um, right. right. So, um, though in those negations, I don't know what time I was born. I don't know. I mean, let's just, let's take that first line of the second stanza. D would I be right to infer that, um, th that the, the, or, or is the implication there something like, well, you might expect a poet to sort of tell you the story of his life or something, which would begin <laughs> with when he was born, but I don't even know when that was, you know? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's obviously playing with the expectations of, of course, everyone knew when he was born is important. Like kind of, uh-huh. you know, and he, and that, and he's not, you can't, and the idea that he's identifying some space between happy or sad where poetry is supposed to kind of mm, identify some kind of peak emotion or something that comes from being dispossessed of a lady or being in grief. And he's like, I'm not either one of those things, like those extremes. So the interesting thing about it is he identifies neg- negations, but they don't line up ever. But they also create some negative space in which you are left wondering, right? Oh. What's about, you know? Can you say more and, about what you mean by they don't line up? Because that sounds really interesting, um, but I'm not sure I get, uh, I'm not late, sure I follow. Yeah, later on, there's a better... Uh, mm. Um, stanza six, I never mm-hmm. saw her and I love her greatly. I was oh, never right. right. And she did me no wrong. So that kind of stuff. He, right. that's, he does these things where you expect to be like, Oh, I, you know, I love her, but she ignores me or something like that. But it's always uh-huh. like you, how do you love someone that you've never seen before? Uh, or this kind of thing. He kind of, um, undoes all the expectations in which love poetry is supposed to be like, oh, love enters through the eyes. Mm-hmm. That's a common convention. <laughs> or, but then you can never have her. The distant love is always there. So you have these all these things about despair. So he kind of he makes a mockery of that, and that's even more emphasized by just if I could um, looking at the Senskin stanza Please. again with the rhythm that's very crude. He uses like very strong masculine rhymes that have this like fricative that fall nats irats privats and that only yeah. emphasizes that parallel no soy no soy so that adds to this like hmm, you're not supposed to take me seriously except I kind of know what I'm doing that deliberate crudeness is part of I the see. negation song. Yeah. I see. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a couple of ideas, but I love how they're being sort of configured or stitched together here. I mean, you might expect, in other words, okay, if the poem is going to have a series of negations, they will sort of cohere. Your term earlier, lineup, is now making you know a lot more. Um, you know, I'm seeing it more clearly, and the fault was mine before, but now I'm getting it. I think um, you you know, I think of, for instance, like you know, my mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. Right, a, a series of negations in that famous Shakespearean sonnet, but you can see how they sort of mm. stack on top of each other, how they're sort of consistent with each other. They by by yeah. saying not X, not Y, not Z, we understand, even if it's only ever right. implied, that some other thing is true. Here right. it's like the negations don't leave room for anything to be true in their stead, right? It's like exactly. everything is right. negated. Right. Right. And exactly. that seems linked paradoxically, perhaps, to the kind of what were you pointing out about the sound of those fricatives to like the sureness or the aggression or the Yeah. The confidence the, yeah, of the vocal performance. The confidence yeah. and the provocation, nats, irats, privats. So I, yeah. I love that TZ, that, yeah. that fricative thing, which only adds to the force of a masculine rhyme. That's when the, it's not um, that the beat drops on the, on the last right. syllable rather than the penultimate, which would be a feminine rhyme, like yeah. ira or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. But here he's like very aggressive, but it's also his chord and it's, it's boasting. This is a boasting right. song in, in, in Occitan. It's called the gap. It's called a boat. That's the genre of the boat. That song. sound but, almost sounds like Germanic to me or something. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I know you said something. romance language, but yeah. Anyway, go on. Yeah. 
Sorry, but I interrupted he invented you. This. He invented this genre. Um, the Bo Sing song, he was known for the Bo Sing song. He's the first troubadour, but also he invented this, the song of negation and other troubadours will copy him kind mm-hmm. of like, but he, I feel like this, this one as the genesis of that genre is really great. Cause it's, uh, I don't know, is this kind of a combination of sophistication and that the negatives don't line up in various ways. Mm-hmm. And then the, the kind of crude poetics of it that's quite sophisticated as well right it's kind of incredible is, yeah. is is this am i hearing you right that this is both you would consider this both a boasting song and a song of yeah. negation yeah i yeah, mean clearly it's, it's a, a song of negation song, right it's yeah. A, yeah it's a there's other songs that's like uh also body but, but this one is really about i'm not this i'm not this i'm not this where it's a serial listing of negations yeah right i mean i guess i'm thinking of you know again i'm so i keep taking us far afield historically but like so emily dickinson or something i i'm nobody who are you that's that's a kind mm-hmm. of song of negation but to me that doesn't sound well maybe i don't know like boasting mm-hmm. it sounds like um humility or self-negation ah. you know or or um yeah. kind of um, this kind of disappearing act or something, but this feels yeah. like it's got real bravado to it. So I, yeah. you know, I get yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I mean, you understand that, like, I, I like how you bring that in because it's, it kind of places this, a song, this song of negation, that's a medieval song in kind of in this trans historical context. So when you talk about Emily Dickinson here, it's, it's boasting because it is a provocation to be like to even sing a song about nothing. And then it is boasting to say, um, undo all these conventions that one would expect, such as yeah. you don't know when you're born. I have a, I have a woman friend. I don't know who she is. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Usually you have a woman friend. I know she is. I can't get to her. So there's all these right. like subtle things that he's playing with. Yeah. 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 I mean, you gave us that lovely, I mean, in the, in the kind of lead up to talking about this poem, you gave us that lovely description of the, of the typical troubadour subject of sort of erotic longing or whatever, where at least the kind of object of desire is named and fixed or something. Right. And it's one's Mm -hmm. access to her that's um, at issue. Um, But, but here, even that kind of convention seems obviously to be denied. Since you you liked my one trans historical <laughs> reference, I'll give you another. And the other thing this reminds me of a little bit, and this is really now in in sort of my um, area of, of research, is like John Berryman in in the Dream Songs, who who's the, like the sort of conceit of that long poem is also, and you know, I think songs in the maybe in the troubadour sense he means too. He's also, of course, referring notoriously to the. Um, tradition of um, minstrelsy and of um, mm-hmm. you know blackface performance in in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but the reason I think of it is because you know in the dream songs Berryman says the, the, it isn't me, it's this character Henry, and it isn't even <laughs> Henry. Henry's asleep, you know. Mm-hmm. So this idea of the sort oh. of disavowal of agency, yeah. like this is just you know sort of coming out of me. You can't put this on me. The kind of hand in the face of the reader as a gesture. I think I'm I'm sort of I picking like that up a on lot. a tradition of that. Yeah, here. And usually, uh, just to rip off of that, usually it's um, you know, dispossession is something that the troubadours sing of. It's like something's taken away from me, and therefore I'll sing and complain about it. And the lady that 
inaccessible love object who's not named becomes a pretext to song to sing about oneself and to celebrate oneself, right? Right. But then here, it's like when you use the word disavowal, it's great because towards the end, he really says like he not only disavows like I don't really like I have a you know I saw her I love her greatly but then she's not worth anything more to me. For I know one more gentle and beautiful who is worth more. So there's this idea that you keep negating, negating, so you can create a space where you can boast, but then also replace it with something else that's better. Right. It's a right. constant, it's like, you know, it reminds me of what you're saying. It's like, I don't, it's like deferral of agency, disavowal, but then what William does as a boasting song, he fills it in, be like, it doesn't matter. I'll, not only do I not care, but I'll just replace it again with something else. I'll right. keep this going. Right. And I guess we can imagine all different sort of varieties of that kind of stance that one might take, you know, and like, so, and I really am thinking of like songs in um, contemporary songs where, you know, there's like the jilted lover who's like, uh, I, I don't care, you know, I, I'm moving on, you know, right. <laughs> kind of thing, where in some cases, that might seem to be a kind of ironic way of of licking one's own, one's wounds <laughs> or yeah. a kind of angry song of, uh, or boastful mm-hmm. song. And, and here it seems like we have something more like the latter. I'm, I'm also interested in, um, you know, what you were describing just a moment ago is this kind of process that happens chronologically where there's the negation and the r- freedom that's created and the replacing of the object and so forth. And I, I'm part of what I'm thinking about here is the sort of, structure of these stanzas which as i noted before like begin with the three rhyming lines and then we get a short line that's unrhymed at least to us at first it seems unrhymed a return of the longer rhyme Mm, line mm. and then a, a, a another short line that rhymes with the earlier short line um mm-hmm. my question for you in thinking about things i'm thinking of analogs like say the sonnet, you know, I'm trying to pick a kind of familiar sort of Mm -hmm. form where readers of the sonnet, say the Elizabethan sonnet, know to expect in the couplet, a kind of witty turn or in the Petrarchan sonnet, know to expect in the Volta kind of, you know, argumentative turn um, on, on what has come before. Is there something like, I'm trying to figure out the right words to describe if even you think this is worth investigating, like what that metrical pattern sort of corresponds to either tonally or argumentatively within mm-hmm. these stanzas, do those short lines tend to correspond with deflationary acts or turns of a kind, or, mm-hmm. you know, what mm-hmm. are you noticing about like what the, um, what the short lines tend to be associated with or what, how, what the typical sort of um, arc um, thematically or whatever of, uh, of one of these six line stanzas is. Yeah, no, it's a good point. I think uh, after the, when you get to the short lines, there's, there's, I think the strong disavowal, like, well, I don't care or right. yeah, I don't know any. Right. But then, but then he, he trumps it by saying, but it doesn't matter because I'm going to find another one. Like there's usually, or some kind of thing where he's going to replace it and get over that somehow compensate for that disavowal or for that dispossession or something like that, or, you know, I don't care. But I think because you mentioned the sonnet, Hmm. one of the things that's important about the troubadours and that these kind of repetitive, you know, you have these, these stanzas in which the same meter repeated 
for everyone. And it would have been a melody that repeated for each stanza. There's this constant, like maybe a movement for a resolution and then a comeback from it. And then it starts again. So something right. about the sonnet, for instance, in its form, there's the, the volta or the turn, but it comes back and it creates more of a balanced form, maybe because it's just one, you know, a single right. sonnet that it can exist as that autonomous integer. Whereas it can, so the ways me- mechanics work, and I think this is goes right to the heart that it was performed. It's a musical phenomenon, right? That right. you can keep on going and riff on certain conventions, certain themes. And the only thing that closes, you have a beginning, which is usually a nature opening or some kind of intro. Um, for the love song, the canso, it's a nature opening. And at the end, you have a what's called a tornado or the envoy or whatever that would have would have uh, you send off a song. It repeats the met, the meter of the and the rhymes of the last um, stanza and then sends it off. So you only have those beginning and ends. But between that, you just kind of repeat certain things, you know, within right. and each stanza is kind of has has a play on that of a rising or falling in different formations. Yeah, so, that's so interesting. I mean, yeah. I'm noticing how now that you say that, how the first stanza begins, and again, forgive my pronunciation, but Farai, and then mm-hmm. the last stanza, the same verb, but in a different tense, I take it, right? Um, fe, uh, yeah. or something, right? So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to make, or I'm going to do, I have made, I, mm-hmm. I have done. I right? have so made, it's, yeah. right. Um, uh, but, but then also something that really caught my ear um, I mean, maybe it would be useful if I just um, read, I'll read in English the fourth and fifth stanzas um, again right now. So here's how they go. I am sick and I am afraid of dying, yet I know nothing about it except what I hear. I'll search for a doctor to my liking. And now we get the first short line, yet I don't know any. <laughs> he will be a good doctor if he can heal me. And then another short line, but not if I worse. And the fifth <laughs> stanza, I have a woman friend. I don't know who she is. For I never saw her, so help me. She never did anything which I like or dislike. First short line, and I don't care. <laughs> for, there, for there was never a yeah. Norman or a Frenchman, the next short line, in my lodging. Um, so that so in, interestingly, like it's like that first short line is like a first kind of um like deflationary negation or something. I mean, that not that there weren't negations before, but it really does. I mean, I have the image of like somebody pricking a balloon with a pin or something. <laughs> but then the fact that we, we get another, like a longer line and then the, sh- uh, the short line again comes in. It's sort of an interesting rhythm. I yeah. guess I'm not really yeah. adding anything to what you said, but just uh, I wanted people to having heard that really um, I like you know, that. fascinating reading to now get to hear an example of it. Again. I think he says yeah. always playing with our expectations, whether in the, the negations don't light up, they don't really completely match or within the structure of the stanza between the short, the first short and the second short, you're like, okay, deflationary prick, as you say, I don't know yeah. any, he will be a good doctor if he can heal me, <laughs> but not if I worsen, like kind of, he's playing with that rhythm of like, well, let me get back to you. Let me have the last word on this. And you don't know what I'm going to say. Right. right. And I think, right. I don't know. I, I don't know if we have time to talk about the last stanza, which is, yeah, which kind of time. gets to the heart of how he plays with, he's playing with everything with the possibility of language of trying to decipher his opaque textual objects. Cause the, the troubadours were, as you say, he says, I done the song. Right. I've completed my jewel of a song. You're not going to figure it out. I'll send it over to the one who will send it to me over from me through another towards Anjou so that she might send me a copy of the key, a copy of the key to her coffer. 
So it's like, yeah, what? I get a little uh, confused there. Help me yeah. because there's, there's so much sort of, um, you know, yeah. layer upon layer of uh, layer. framing or something. I get, I get a little lost. So what's happening for you in, in that sequence? I mean, this it's a lot. It's like, yeah, why the deliberate, like, I'll send it over to the one. Okay, you think that's maybe that's the the lady who he loves or someone right. who will send it to an, for me through another, maybe replacing that former one to with another lady. I don't know. So that she might send me the copy of the key to her copper. So I guess the last one will send back in exchange for his poem, a copy of the key to her copper, which is could be the key to her body or to, you can have me or uh, um, to you know, her wealth key to or my, to her... her own song. Yeah. Like, you know, but anyway, we we're familiar with the ideas of as a poem or as something to be unlocked. So a copy, but right. it's like this fact that he says the copy of the key really is like, why not just the yeah. key? <laughs> I don't know, but he's playing with a lot of ideas. It's like kind of a copy of the keys, the same key, one, another person, everything's a messenger. Everything kind of like continues in this paratactical, like um, versions right. of the song sent away. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, it's, I don't know. Um, it's just kind of William, like kind of playing with, all these expectations we have about how a song can be transferred, how it can be heard. Can it hold any meaning that everyone understands or no? <laughs> right. Maybe right. it's just about the relation of one of being transferred one to the other and creating a song that's you can't really unlock, but yet can be transferred from one person to another. If it's sufficiently un unopen, you can't open it impenetrable. <laughs> oh, I, you know? I, 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 I love that actually. So, I mean, yeah, I, so yeah, I, I want to spend a little bit more time talking about that final <laughs> stanza, but, 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 and, but in fact, and first I want to just back up slightly from it and say, and sort of remember that you said earlier, like all, all what the negations kind of make room for a kind of, I don't know, like free play or something. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they you know so so then i think well like evacuated of content Mm -hmm. then what what's left is just like the sound of the voice or something right right? like voice without content you know Uh, um it's as though like the song doesn't have words just a melody or something Mm -hmm. um right um and, and 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 so so then i think well like well what's the what's the value of that or what's the point of that? I don't know. It's pleasing or something, but this idea that comes in in the last stanza of actually, I have one kind of factual or sort of gloss, gloss, like a request for a gloss here. Anjou toward Anjou. What's what's, what is that? Um, I don't yeah, know. That's that a town. Yeah. So one of the I things see. that when they makes these references to towns or Norman or Frenchman or right. things, those, those, they, those places yeah. actually exist. They said something to, to mm-hmm. the audience like this is one of these kind of deictic tags like pointing like everyone knows like mm-hmm. you know sending it off to palo alto it's like okay that means something <laughs> to that audience right there they know exactly what you're talking about but it just so what does Anjou it, mean? It usually happens at tornada right yeah. yeah yeah like that city over there so that she is identified with a certain place you know 
Uh, and so, I mean, but but is know, maybe, the, does, does that place have a particular character in the I don't know twelfth um, century? Oh yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it was probably a well-known city that's well established uh-huh. and has. But I don't know anything more about it. Yeah, but, that's um, fine. Yeah, that's yeah. Good. But but it, what isn't like a small village it was definitely established city. So it yeah. puts it on a yeah. map. So I guess one exactly. thing that might make us think is, oh, maybe there is a particular lady or something, right? right? I mean, if. If he's got, or a, if he's willing, or right, face. or patron, good, yeah. Um, Although he's on, he doesn't need a patron, so like, right. just someone who he's 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 connected to, and but I like what you said about that. He kind of evacuates meaning from the language. Just all we're left is is this song that we can't really figure out. It's just a a series of a network of negations, but that somehow can be transferred at the end to one to another. You know? Yeah. Um, well, it, it it sounds like the in the kind of um, in the iterative kind of replicability of the stanzas mm-hmm. themselves. It you know now having read that last stanza again, I'm looking at them and like oh they all kind of look like keys or something, or they look like you know they have the same sort of shape. They seem like copies of each other. Um, I'm thinking. Mm. I'm thinking. For instance, there's this. There's this wonderful um, early letter that um, Marianne Moore, the you know great American modernist poet, writes. She sends actually um, to someone uh, we've named already to Ezra Pound, in which she describes her um, compositional practice, and she says what she does is like she'll write. She'll write the first stanza of a poem, deciding where the line breaks sort of naturally fall she'll finish mm-hmm. the stanza and then she'll just take that form and repeat that as many times as she mm-hmm. needs to, to get through the poem. She doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. actually always do that, but she does. And it seems like in some poems, and there's this idea that like, okay, I have found the kind of modular form for this text. And now I can repeat it as long as I need to having fashioned it for the first right. time. I can keep repeating it. And those do sound to me in a way like, you know, copies of a key or something, mm, you know, the, yeah. the, I, I mean, the stanza shape itself. And then there's mm, also mm. something very moving about, I mean, going all the way back to um, what you said earlier about the, 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 the kind of historical fact that these poems weren't written or songs weren't written down at all until, you know, several generations after they had first been performed, that clearly too relies on a kind of hand to hand or mouth to mouth kind of transferring transmission. Yeah. Yeah. Transmission um, through a set of copies that, um, I mean, I noticed for instance, like it doesn't seem at least from talking to you about this one poem, like there's all that much, concern or anxiety about like the any um degradation that happens through that series of um transmissions over generations it you know it seems like yeah we're reasonably happy with the manuscript with the texts that we have they seem you know there's no like hand wringing about oh you know certain things got smoothed out or or altered in the transmission that also seems sort of generically interesting to me, historically mm-hmm, interesting mm-hmm. to me. Um, yeah. I mean, the idea that, so we as modern people, like are so fixated, a text should be a certain way, but right. the, you know, when you go into pre-modern text, they had a certain framework of meters, they had as melody and that right. 
that they could have played with it, maybe replaced certain rhymes or themes. But um, and we do have instances where people are like, well, that doesn't that's not, that negation doesn't make sense there. Like, uh, you know, but yeah. for the most part, you know, that the text was could could basically remain malleable in this kind of as way as like a blueprint and 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 stay the same. So yeah. when they say I'll send it over to the one and the other another, maybe it's like you can imagine it might be changed by one word that, but in structure stays the same. Yeah. And what I find interesting, but send me a copy of the key to her copper. What I, I, I thought so much about what does that mean? Like why a copy of the key and what the copper might mean to me, it's always like yeah. bodily, like he wants because he's so like a boastful, sexual, poetic prowess kind of guy right. uh, that, that it's something about um, in exchange for giving this song that's so impenetrable, she will give me the key that will un- be able to unlock hers. <laughs> um, well, but I don't know. Right. Yeah. Right, the impenetrable song, the the penetrable <laughs> love object, or something. Right, right? Yeah. yeah, right. I know. Yeah, uh, uh, and on that note, <laughs> uh, on that note, the, that a very William the Ninth note. Uh, yeah, right. But he well, was in other songs. Yeah. He always boasts about like I have my horse, I have my two horses and my two castles, and the horses are obviously these women he plays off with each other, which is goes to that line. I know one more gentle and beautiful who is worth more. So he's always like, I can have, I exchange one woman with another. I, you know, I have a, I play them off each other. This kind right. of control and boasting. Right, right. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. This this has been um, such a pleasure. You know, I wonder, um, um. If if I can ask you, Marissa, I mean, I I feel like I'm asking too much of you, but <laughs> listeners have told me that they like it when they hear the poem again at the end of a conversation. Sure. Would you be willing to read it again for us? Yeah, sure. In the Occitan. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing I always make my students like, even if they don't know us and you know or whatever, that like try to read it because they'll find that the words. I say you pronounce every syllable and you find that the, the rhythm and the meter just falls into your mouth because of the way it's designed. <laughs> the very right. good practice. But yeah, every time I read, I'm like, oh, this is really, you know, deliberately sounds this way. But really yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Here we go. The Rayon Versi Dreit Nien, non er de Nien in the Alchogen, non er d'amour ni de Joven, ni de Renan, Kenans Vochrobats and Domain, Susun Shivar. No sai e calora mi fnats, no soy allegos ni rats, ni soy eschans ni soy privats, ni non quascal. Can I see fui de nuets padats sobre un pregal? No sai coram suendo mits, ni coram vei no siem non modits, per pac no mes locor patits d'un dol coral. E no mo prets una fromits per sant marsal. Malaut soy e clemi morir. Erai no sai mas can nao stir, mechi calai al miul al beer, en nom sai tau. Bos mech que se sin pod gelir, mes no si amau. Amiga you no sai quises, que no la vi si mauti fes, ni fes quem pleza ni quem pes, ni nomen cao. Cag non ac noman ni frances dins monostau. Anc no la vi es em la fort, canc no rai dreit in nom ves dort, canc no la ve, bemento port, non prats un jau, canc nan sai gens ore bella zol, e qui mais vau. No sai lo loic ves on sesta, se sin preik or sen empla, no saus dire lot os gema, abans men cau, e pesam mi carse rema, e abait en vau. Faitai lo vers no sai tiki, e tramatrai lo as que lui, Que l'on tramètra par atrui qu'en vers anjau, 
comme Charles Knight, c'est « Del sui estui la, la contra clau <laughs> ». Contra clau, yeah, that's great. Alors, the counter key. <laughs> oh, good, right, yeah. So that's um, the um, the translation ends to her coffer, but that's what that sounded like to me was the ca- <laughs> yeah the key. Yeah, I love that we end with that word in Occitan. The key. Yeah, the counter uh, key. <laughs> the counter key. What a lovely uh, what a lovely word to have. Um, uh, Marissa Galvez, um, I'll do a song about nothing at all. Um, William the Ninth. Uh, this has been um, a, a real pleasure and an education. Um, for me and I'm sure for our listeners. So uh, Marissa, I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with us about this Troubadour song. You're welcome and thank you. It's been so much fun. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad I'm glad you thought so. Um, listeners, thank you for hanging out with us for the last hour. Um, I hope you'll um, uh, follow the podcast on whatever um, service um, you get your podcasts and um, leave us a rating and review, share an episode with a friend. <laughs> Let's spread the good word. It's nice to grow this community um, when we can. And um, I will have more for you soon. Be well, everyone.